Hello, and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackeray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On June 30th, 2022, we talked with Maggie Bartlett, a postdoctoral fellow in the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She did her bachelor's at the University of Nebraska and her PhD at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She uses next-generation sequencing techniques to study viral persistence and immune mechanisms of viral control in the brain. Thanks for uh, talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me, Larissa. I'm Dr. Maggie Bartlett, and I just waved at the camera, and this is a podcast, but uh, I have a Bachelor's of Science in Biotechnology from the University of Nebraska, and then a PhD from the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Infectious Diseases, Immunology, and Pathology. And now I'm a postdoc at Johns Hopkins University in the School of Public Health. Uh, and I study a lot of different viruses and particularly I'm interested in viral persistence and some of the unique immune mechanisms to control viruses in places like the brain. Cool. And can you tell us sort of how you first became interested in science and then virology? How did that happen for you? Yeah, so that is, a, it's a short and a long story. Uh, I really came to science out of fear. So as a kid, I had pretty severe obsessive compulsive disorder and was quite afraid of all the things that I couldn't see. And it led to a lot of, you know, ritual hand washing and things like that. But in learning to control that fear, I needed to learn about these pathogens that I was so afraid of. And as I started down that journey, I learned about the immune system and how we're really combating these pathogens all the time. And we're able to control a lot of them. And I have this great fascination now with this interplay between the two and really was able to control that fear through knowledge. Um, and of course, you know, you start with the first thing that you're afraid of, which is the bacteria on your skin. So I worked in a staff lab and um, I had heard about this parasite that cats get, toxoplasma. And so I spent some time in a toxoplasma lab. And, um, you know, during my doctoral degree, I started working on filoviruses like Marburg and Ebola in bats. Um, and then, you know, once you go to BSL-4 pathogens, you kind of covered the spectrum and you can kind of find what's, what's, what's driving you still. Uh, and so I moved into new different viruses. Uh, so now I'm working on alpha viruses as well as measles virus. And as all virologists, I think in the last few years, a little bit of SARS-CoV-2. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about how you got to the lab you're in today? Maybe a little bit about it. You know, what's the composition? Who's in it? That kind of thing. Yeah. So I'm in uh, Dr. Diane Griffin's lab. So she really has kind of two different halves of the lab where she's focusing on alpha virus pathogenesis and persistence, 
as well as measles virus and the difference between it and vaccines, as well as some persistence aspects there. Uh, and I came in on the alpha virus side. So I had met a previous grad student of hers while I was a grad student who had spoke very highly of her. Uh, and that's always something you want to look for when you're picking the next position. Uh, so I had a couple different interviews for postdocs. And ultimately, I thought that the science was something I was interested in, this question of persistence. And, you know, she's she's a phenomenal person in the persistence world, regardless of which virus. Um, and also, like, hearing the way she talked about her trainees, was a it was a clear that was going to be a good lab. Um, and so while I started on the alpha virus side, I have this interest in persistence, which kind of connects the two viruses in this background in next generation sequencing. And so she had had some projects where they were trying to recover virus, measles virus within cells, and they weren't able to get it with the previous uh, postdocs. And I thought, you know, I, I'd like to take a crack at this. And so that's actually what the talk is going to be on is the start of that project and uh, where we are today, which is being able to detect measles virus in single cells. Um, and so we were able to do that part of it. And then uh, she also, of course, as a virologist, picked up a lot of SARS-CoV-2 projects. Uh, and so one of, one of kind of the intersections that the lab has is we have, you know, half a dozen trainees, so master students, PhD students, uh, we have a couple DVM students, and then we also have postdocs, we have a technician, we have a lab manager, and then there's also some um, MD fellows, because uh, Diane is an MD PhD, and so she has both postdoctoral fellows. Um, and so we're all kind of split, depending on what you're interested in, some of us are working on one SARS-CoV project. Some of us are working on others. The ones I've really jumped in on are the ones related to antibody secreting cells. I always say I'm B-cell biased from grad school. Um, and so we worked on the differences between mild and severe there. And then we really have kind of a platform we've developed with those samples. And now we're applying it to other cohorts that those questions would be interested in. But a little bit of, a little bit of everything. Cool. And can you, um, I guess, talk a little bit about when you say persistence um, of viruses, what do you mean? So there, actually, there's a lot of conversation about that and that now in the context of long COVID and is there a persistent antigen or persistent virus, but what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think I've always been kind of interested in this question of what happens to virus, especially when I was during grad school, I was with part of a group that had looked at Ebola persistence, uh, right? And so the fact that it could persist in places like the eye for years after, I think is really well known now. Um, and so how it gets there, what it's doing while it's there and how it comes back. And this all kind of also ties into my work in toxoplasma because that parasite, you know, it hides from your immune system and forms these cysts. And then really you can live a healthy life with it. Uh, until you become immunocompromised, uh, or if you are, unfortunately, you get it while you're immunocompromised, it's a huge issue or pregnant. Um, but just this switch between the pathogen being able to hide itself and the immune system not seeing it. And I think part of that interest is, 
you know, learning the brain is an immune specialized zone or, you know, starting from no immune system gets to the brain, but B cells do. Uh, Diane's lab had shown that a while ago, T cells do. The cells that get there act slightly differently than they act elsewhere in the body. And so just this secondary function of these cells was really interesting to me. And I think with SARS-CoV-2, I don't know that we've seen direct evidence that the virus is persisting in the brain um, for humans. We certainly know it is for a lot of alpha viruses, um, filoviruses, and things like that. And not that it couldn't be, just that the data so far does not support that. But Right. Um, um, I think, yeah, I was actually thinking more like, uh, I, I think the persistence for SARS is, I would say, a little bit more um, healthy data for the GI tract, maybe not so much for the yeah. brain, right? So there's clearly some persistent something. Um, uh, the brain's a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, the do data's a little softer, I guess, as it were. Um. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it's not as easy to take a human brain biopsy. Right, exactly, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, yes. And when you when you talk about sort of like the virus hiding from the immune system, what kind of interactions are you talking about there? Is it, you know, the virus is down-regulating immunity, or is it sort of in a place that is not actively under surveillance? What are you kind of talking about there? Yeah, so I think it's kind of a combination and primarily the work that I've done in alpha viruses in particular Simbis virus is looking at what's happening when the virus gets into the cell, specifically mature neurons, because there's a different response. Uh, and how does antibody aid that? Because we know there are antibodies that are helpful in this context, but aren't neutralizing the virus. And so what was interesting there is well, what is the antibody doing? Because you can't have antibody dependent cytotoxicity or your neurons would die and that's obviously a bad outcome. Uh, and so how is antibody protecting if it's not neutralizing or cytotoxic? So kind of looking at the pathways that are being triggered within the cell and also turned off within the cell. And some of the work there suggests that antibody is helping as far as point the cell and I think other people have shown similar things in different viruses. Uh, you know, science is one of many, but antibody is pushing the virus to be sequestered within the cell, uh, whether it be within vesicles or endosomes, we don't quite know yet, but the pathways are suggestive that it's being sequestered versus contained in the other canonical antibody mechanisms. Hmm. Interesting. Um... And is that, do you think that that sort of antibody um, uh, sequestration, as it were, is, is involved in persistence as well, or is this more an acute disease? Uh, yeah, I like that question, because that's very much where I started diving down to try and parse out this, because I think there's this link between the virus being sequestered and then being able to come back later on and figuring out exactly how and how the outside immune landscape is affecting the internal effect of these neurons, especially because they're clearly able to sequester it, but not, again, not die. Um, whether they're getting rid of the cargo or it's staying within those neurons until it does 
potentially lice them. Uh, we're still looking at that, but so we've created some fluorescent probes to the virus and uh, obviously have tested a lot of different markers for the endosome and all the other cargo pieces that we're interested in and are going to follow with some microscopy to see if we can capture it in action. Uh, and so I'm hopeful soon we'll be able to show that. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah. This, this, uh, this data always fascinates me from the Griffin lab because I actually did my comp exam on it many, many years ago. And so I still remember oh my one of my um, professors scoffing and saying, there's no way that antibody is doing this. I'm always happy to see that the work has continued. <laughs> oh yeah. It's what, it's what got me interested. The project that got me interested in the lab. Yeah. I was like, what, what is that antibody doing? Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you then talk a little bit, I guess, about um, sort of what kind of studies you are doing? Are you doing in vitro studies, in vivo studies? And then what's the, some of the techniques? So you alluded a little bit to it, but what are the kind of techniques that you use for your kind of uh, work? Sure. So as a virologist, uh, plaque assays, uh, many of plaque assays, a lot of qPCR, Western blots for different targets. Uh, I came from, again, a next-gen sequencing lab, so anything that I can frame in an omics approach, we've done. And so I feel very fortunate to be in a supportive lab where when I say, hey, I want to do the transcriptome of infected neurons versus neurons that have been treated, I've been able to just go for that. Uh, and so that was an in vitro project, but we have teams within the Griffin lab who work on in vivo projects. And so anything that we find on the in vitro side, we can complement with that in vivo piece, which is really important. You know, reviewers always love when you do both. And then uh, for the non-human primate measles studies, I have done a lot of the sample prep to prepare for single cell sequencing. So you were actually talking a little bit about um, single cell RNA-seq. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, why that is, uh, in a way, a, like a more complex way um, to look at um, sort of an infected cell and what, what additional information it actually gives you compared to, say, bulk RNA-seq? Yes, excellent question. I love bulk RNA-seq. It is one of the places where I started, but it has its caveats. Every experiment does. It's caveat being the cells are heterogeneous. And when you see a signal, you're seeing the, the mixed signal from everything versus you don't know what's happening in the infected cells versus the uninfected cells. And so you might miss things that are actually going on, or you might see kind of a red herring effect where something looks really interesting, but it turns out to be not so interesting. Uh, so single cell lets us look at that individual cell level, what's happening and lets us kind of fine tune what we're interested in. So we can take, for instance, in the non-human primate cells, we can look at B cells and specifically B cells that have virus in them. And if we want to take it further, we can look at, you know, the memory B cells and how do those differ from the naive B cells that are infected or ones that are expressing CD150, which is important for measles infection. And so you can kind of go into a much deeper level than with the bulk sequencing. The caveat being that it is far more expensive and you need a lot more cells 
than you do for bulk sequencing. And you're always going to be biased depending on how you prepare those cells. Those cells have to be alive by the time you get to the core. And uh, it should be easy, but there's always uh, places where you need to optimize. Right, right. Um, and then I guess um, thinking maybe a little bit into the future, what are you thinking about your, like, I guess your plans for the future? Where are you, where do you see yourself going after, after this? Yeah, I would love to lead my own lab one day. I'm not sure the trajectory that will take me there, but I'm learning, uh, you know, I'm taking students and exposing myself to a lot of different pathogens. I probably shouldn't be exposing myself to different pathogens, but getting a wide uh, expertise across pathogens and getting that training that you kind of miss out on in the traditional sense of leading a lab. So one of the benefits to the postdoc program here is that we have a lot of seminars about management and uh, writing different styles of grants and different connections, which are so important because you don't really learn that any other place along the way. Uh, and when you know, you know, you want to lead a lab, the steps to get there are to do great science, publish that great science, uh, and then a little bit of timing and luck that the position is available when you're ready to make that step. So Right, right. Um, and how has sort of the last two and a half years of the pandemic, how has that affected you in your postdoc? Ooh, it's been, it's been an interesting period of time. It's funny because I, I did interview with a SARS-CoV-2, well, SARS lab, when I was considering postdocs. And I thought, you know, I don't know that I want to do SARS at that time. And then of course now everyone is doing SARS-CoV-2. And so it changed a little bit, obviously the type of research I was doing, it changed kind of the dynamic because obviously I felt very grateful that I could contribute to the world. I think a lot of us felt that way that my pipetting skills are useful here. Um, you know, I was able to get into the lab because my lab had that overlap, which I, feel fortunate for, because I know a lot of fellow postdocs who weren't and had to pivot pretty significantly so that they could continue to move forward. Um, and I also took on a lot of students who were stuck in the countries that they were coming to the program from because of visa issues. And so we had to develop these kind of different intersectional between bioinformatics and the virus they were gonna study uh, and I, those students did really exceptionally well. It wasn't what they had originally signed up for, but I'm very proud of them. And they uh, are both on to, they were both master students who are now on to new PhD programs. But uh, it's been, it's been interesting, but I think it's been good. I think there's been things that we've learned like Zoom. I think everybody love it or hate it you know, some meetings are better as this. <laughs> um, and so I, I hope we get to take the good things, like staying home when you're sick. <laughs> uh, and just like the greater empathy for other humans, I think would be nice, but. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, great. Um, thanks for talking with us today. And we look forward to hearing your um, talk at the um, measles symposium. Um, and uh, good luck with your research. Thanks, Larissa. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.